Section 6 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maistre Translated by Henry Atwell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Albert and Charlotte The walls of my room are hung with engravings and pictures which adorn it greatly. I should much like to submit them to the reader's inspection, that they might amuse him along the road we have to traverse before we reach my bureau. But it is as impossible to describe a picture well as to paint one from a description. What an emotion he would feel in contemplating the first drawing that presents itself. He would see the unhappy Charlotte, slowly and with a trembling hand, wiping Albert's pistols, dark forebodings and all the agony of hopeless, inconsolable love are imprinted on her features, while the cold-hearted Albert, surrounded by bags of law papers and various documents, turns with an air of indifference towards his friends to bid him goodbye. Many a time have I been tempted to break the glass that covers this engraving, that I might tear Albert away from the table, rend him to pieces and trample him underfoot. But this would not do away with the Alberts. There will always be, sadly, too many of them in the world. What sensitive man is there who has not such a one near him, who receives the overflowings of his soul, the gentle emotions of his heart, and the flights of his imaginations, just as the rock receives the waves of the sea? Happy is he who finds a friend whose heart and mind harmonise with his own, a friend who adheres to him by likeness of tastes, feeling and knowledge, a friend who is not the prey of ambition or greediness, who prefers the shade of a tree to the pomp of a court. Happy is he who has a friend. Chapter 21 A Friend I had a friend. Death took him from me. He was snatched away at the beginning of his career, at the moment when his friendship had become a pressing need to my heart. We supported one another in the hard toil of war. We had but one pipe between us. We drank out of the same cup. We slept beneath the same tent. And, amid our sad trials, the spots where we lived together became to us a new fatherland. I had seen him exposed to all the perils of a disastrous war. Death seemed to spare us to each other. His deadly missives were exhausted around my friend a thousand times over without reaching him. But this was but to make his loss more painful to me. The tumult of war and the enthusiasm which possesses the soul at the sight of danger might have presented his sighs from piercing my heart, while his death would have been useful to his country and damaging to the enemy. Had he died thus, I should have mourned him less. But to lose him amidst the joys of our winter quarters, to see him die at the moment when he seemed full of health, and when our intimacy was rendered closer by rest and tranquillity, ah, this was a blow from which I can never recover. But his memory lives in my heart, and there alone. He is forgotten by those who surrounded him, and who have replaced him, and this makes his loss the more sad to me. Nature, in like manner indifferent to the fate of individuals, 
dons her green spring robe, and decks herself in all her beauty near the cemetery where he rests. The trees cover themselves with foliage and intertwine their branches. The birds warble under leafy sprays. The insects hum among the blossoms. Everything breathes joy in this abode of death. And in the evening, when the moon shines in the sky, and I am meditating in this sad place, I hear the grasshopper, hidden in the grass that covers the silent grave of my friend, merrily pursuing his unwearied song. The unobserved deconstruction of human beings, as well as all their misfortunes, are counted for nothing in the grand total of events. The death of an affectionate man who breathes his last, surrounded by his afflicted friends, and that of a butterfly killed in a flower's cup by the chill air of morning, are but two similar epochs in the course of nature. Man is but a phantom, a shadow, a mere vapour that melts into the air. But daybreak begins to whiten the sky. The gloomy thoughts that troubled me vanish with the darkness, and hope awakens again in my heart. No, he who thus suffuses the east with light has not made it to shine upon my eyes only to plunge me into the night of annihilation. He who has spread out that vast horizon, who raised those lofty mountains whose icy tops the sun is even now gilding, is also he who made my heart to beat and my mind to think. No, my friend is not annihilated. Whatever may be the barrier that separates us, I shall see him again. My hopes are based on no mere syllogism. The flight of an insect suffices to persuade me, and often the prospect of the surrounding country, the perfume of the air, and an indescribable charm which is spread around me so raise my thoughts that an invincible proof of immortality forces itself upon my soul and fills it to the full. Chapter 22 Jenny The chapter I have just written had often presented itself to my pen, but I had as often rejected it. I had promised myself that I would only allow the cheerful phase of my soul to show itself in this book. But this project, like many others, I was forced to abandon. I hope that the sensitive reader will pardon me for having asked his tears. And if anyone thinks I should have omitted this chapter, he can tear it from his copy, or even throw the whole book on the fire. Enough for me, dear Jenny, that my heart approves it, thou best and best beloved of women, best and best beloved of sisters. To thee I dedicate my work. If it please thee, it will please all gentle and delicate hearts. And if thou wilt pardon the follies into which, albeit against my will, I sometimes fall, I will brave all the critics of the universe. End of section 6